If doctors told us that we'd made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Two men responsible for the soccer resurgence here in Northern California and hopefully all of California. On my right, Mr. Joe O'Neill, one of the owners of the Clippers. On my left, the other owner, Toby Hilliard. I'll talk with Mr. O'Neill only because he's taller and has a hat. Uh, Mr. O'Neill, what are your thoughts about this being a success as far as this type of game, an international game between the foreign side of a high caliber and your team? Well, our only success, real financial success last year, was when we played foreign teams. We uh, drew good crowds and people seemed to take a great interest. As a matter of fact, today, after I don't know how many days and days of rain. This is a pretty fair turnout, I believe, Mario. Does this give you uh, an optimistic look as to the future of soccer with a turnout like this in spite of the inclement weather you've had here this past week? Oh, I definitely think so. I think we're going to pursue this program and bring in top teams wherever possible. Thank you, Mr. O'Neill. Mr. Hilliard, you've been with us three years now. I think I've had the pleasure of working with you. This is going to be the third year. What are your thoughts on this great game of soccer that you knew nothing about three years ago? I still don't know anything about it, but I, I certainly enjoy watching it. And I, uh, one of the great things about soccer, I have a, a guest here today who's never seen it before, and he's just as excited as I am, having watched uh, quite a lot of it now. And it's the one game that my wife gets a big kick out of. All the girls do. I, I like it. That was a very bad pun, but I'll accept that from you, seeing that you are the about the big kick. But uh, <laughs> The negotiations with a Russian team of the stature and caliber of Dinamo Kiev, was it very difficult in getting them to come here to the United States to play your team and be guests of yours here in Northern California? Well, it was arranged through uh, the Russian Soccer Federation. Uh, we didn't really know what team we were going to get when we, when we asked the Russian Federation for a team to play against. And uh, they sent us the best, and I think that's fine. I wish it wouldn't look quite so good today, but they sent us the best. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this party started, shall we? How you doing, everybody? It's Tim Hanlon, your pal, your uh, congenial host, your doctor of defunct, your advocator of expansion, your professor, previously domicile, whatever you want to call me. Uh, we welcome you to the proceedings. We call them good seats still available. Yes, our little journey we uh, attempt to do for you each and every week as we explore what used to be in professional sports. So usually it's teams and leagues, occasionally some events and other sort of oddities, um, uh, various stories attached to said. And we'll go way back. We'll go not so way back. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but uh, we spin the wheel this week and we're back into soccer. We love soccer, of course, and arguably the reason why we got into this little uh, silly escapade in the first place uh, with the old cosmos of the North American Soccer League. Well, for you soccer aficionados out there, you know that the NASL uh, itself uh, was birthed uh, rather uh, violently uh, from, count them, two leagues uh, that uh, both uh, thought that uh, the sport of the future was theirs to be had in 1967. Uh, and a good primer uh, for this episode, as we get into in a few minutes, uh, is our episode back in uh, February, I think, of 2018, 
uh, number episode number 47, our, our guest uh, then, Dennis Cease, we talked about the United Soccer Association and the National Professional Soccer League, the two main leagues or entities that uh, circa 1967 uh, both battled it out to uh, bring professional soccer on the big, big stage uh, here to the United States. And um, one could argue, uh, and, and without sort of much fight, uh, that that was uh, two leagues too many, <laughs> frankly. But um, we're going to get into an interesting story about one of the teams in one of those leagues, and that was the NPSL. As you as you may remember, the NPSL was the rogue league. That this was the one that, for whatever reasons, we'll get into, did not get the official blessing of FIFA, the International Soccer Federation. And you soccer nerds out there know how important that is in the sort of outsized influence that that FIFA has over anything domestic soccer wise, not only in the United States, but any country, frankly, around the globe. It's very, very powerful organization has been for some time. But they uh, ran afoul of FIFA. They did not get the blessing. However, they did have something that their rival United Soccer Association did not have and lusted for desperately. And that was a national television contract with the CBS television network, right? And back in the day, back in 1967, that was a huge deal, much bigger than it is today, because you only had three broadcast networks and a handful of TV stations in each market. And in if, if that was going to be a sport that uh, people were going to uh, watch and uh, get into, uh, a national television contract was more than the thing and arguably a big ticket uh, to uh, hopefully success. Of course, we know that didn't pan out that way. And there's a whole bunch of reasons. And we're going to get into some of that this week with our guest, Derek Liechty. And why is Derek an interesting character? Well, first of all, he's written a very cool article in uh, a recent uh, 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 posting uh, on the uh, Society for American Soccer History website. That's uh, ussoccerhistory.org. And it's about a team that he was the general manager of in the NPSL, the first year in 1967. And as you know, the NPSL and the USA merged, sort of a marriage of convenience, I would say, a shotgun wedding, if you will, uh, to become the North American Soccer League in 1968. Uh, And there's a whole sort of mess of a story in that. Uh, But the Oakland Clippers, uh, also known as the California Clippers, both in the very beginnings of their existence, as well as at the very end of their existence. But for all intents and purposes, the 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 uh, the gooey center, I guess, of this team was known as the Oakland Clippers. And why? Because they were, of course, domiciled in Oakland, California. And Derek was the uh, uh, founding general manager and frankly, the only general manager. The team only lasted about two, two pro league seasons and then a third you know, half season or so of exhibitions. And we'll get into that story in a few moments. Um, but uh, they were domiciled in a then brand spanking new Oakland Alameda Coliseum, uh, home to the newly relocated Oakland A's as well, and the Oakland Raiders. Uh, and as you know, with our previous conversations uh, with um, Steve Courier and uh, Mark Gretschmel, the uh, California Golden Seals found a home there too, and eventually the the Warriors as well, the former San, Fr- uh, San Francisco Warriors. Uh, that became in Golden State, of course. But Oakland was uh, quite the uh, the hot property, brand new stadium, modern, state of the art back at the, t- at the t- in the time. And uh, the story of the Clippers is a fascinating one, uh, and frankly, also indicative of uh, the history of the uh, pre NASL 
National Professional Soccer League, as well as a little bit of uh, of the the history with the United Soccer Association. Those two leagues that that merged uh, after sort of beating each other to a pulp uh, into the NASL the following year. Uh, the Clippers were part of both uh, parts of that story. And as we get into with our conversation with Derek in just a few moments, uh, you're going to find it fascinating. The Oakland Clippers won uh, what I guess today would be known as the treble, the triple, the uh, three titles that were to be had back then. Um, and no, they didn't include the U.S. Open Cup. So technically, well, whatever. I mean, they still won three titles. And and interesting story in that. First, they won the uh, regular season championship. Right, There was nothing awarded for that. It was no shield like there is this uh, today in Major League Soccer or some of the other pro leagues around the world. Uh, but they had the best record, the Oakland Clippers did. 19 wins, 18 losses, five ties and the most points. Uh, they also won something uh, a week later after. Well, so they won the uh, the. Uh, NPSL final. That's what it was. It was a one game playoff. The top two teams in each division played the final. That was uh, beating the Baltimore Bays in a two game series. Uh, and they won the NPSL final championship uh, uh, title. But they also won this interesting little thing uh, a week afterwards called the Commissioner's Cup, which was sort of this odd uh, post uh, uh, championship kind of uh, thing where the two runners up in each of the divisions, in this case, the St. Louis stars uh, and the, who was it? The St. Louis stars and the Philadelphia Spartans. Yeah. Um, they played each other uh, and uh, St. Louis won that and won the right to play the winners of the MPSL championship, the Clippers for this commissioner's cup, this sort of add-on championship. And the Clippers won that as well. That was a one game uh, effort uh, in uh, September of 67. They won that game six to three. So the Clippers, the Oakland Clippers in 1967, the MPSL won it all. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't do any better. And in 1968, when the NASL, the sort of reconstituted uh, marriage of those two leagues became one, the Clippers were arguably one of the best teams in that as well. The uh, interesting challenge there, however, was uh, they had almost an identical record of success, but because of the convoluted way that the uh, the, the standings and the uh, divisions were set up, they had the second best record and point total in the league in the regular season, and they did not make the playoffs. So they'd have a chance to defend their championship. And uh, it's just the beginnings of uh, perhaps a whole set of uh, frustrations uh, with this very interesting team, the Oakland Clippers. Derek Liecki was the general manager of that. And boy, oh boy, does he have some stories to tell. And beyond that, too, because in 1969, when the NASL was on the basically on death's doorstep, uh, remember, you had two professional leagues challenging each other with dozens of teams. By 1969, the NASL was only down to five teams, and the Clippers were going to be the sixth until they kind of figured out that, hey, you know what? Maybe this isn't going to sort of last. Maybe we should, let's just stick around on our own. We'll make some money on our own by playing some international squads. Uh, keep the keep the uh, the coin in the bank, so to speak, and maybe we'll revisit the NASL uh, the following year. Uh, all kinds of hijinks ensued there. And that clip that you heard at the beginning there, Mario Machado, remember him? Uh, dulcet Tones, a uh, longtime soccer broadcaster in the United States, uh, very suave and debonair. Um uh, interviewing the two owners uh, of the Clippers franchise. And you get a sense because that was a game that was an exhibition game played in that 69 season uh, against uh, Dynamo uh, Kiev of Ukraine. Um, and 
that was, uh, you know, a, a really good taste of uh, 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 of the kinds of competition. They played Santos and a few other teams, Fiorentina, I think, uh, a bunch of other teams. Uh, and literally, it was just a, an all-star kind of uh, uh, exhibition series. Uh, but you'll hear in our conversation with Derek coming up, uh, the uh, powers that be in professional soccer uh, did not take to that uh, too kindly. Um, but that interview that uh, you heard, that was from the halftime of that D- Dynamo Kiev, Oakland, uh, actually, was, they were called the California Clippers at that point, uh, was from February 1969. Uh, and the uh, the two owners there, uh, Joe Joseph O'Neill and uh, and H.T. Hilliard, uh, themselves, interesting stories too, not very new to the game. They were Texas oilmen, uh, and uh, Derek was the guy who, uh, uh, as we'll hear how and why, hint, hint, the International Soccer League in the early 1960s was the sort of seeds of it, uh, got into uh, basically corralling these guys, uh, convincing them of the uh, the uh, importance of the sport. And boy, you know, they're to be commended because for a good three years or so, they were all in and then some. It's the story of the Oakland Clippers, sometimes known as the California Clippers, uh, in just a few moments with our guest this week, Derek Liecki the former general manager of that team. It's a tremendously interesting story, and it's all yours coming up in a few moments' time. All right, the holidays are literally around the corner, and uh, get your pens and paper ready. If you haven't heard this before, you're going to appreciate all the discount codes we've got from five great sites for the sports fan in your life, somebody who enjoys old-school sports, uh, teams and leagues that have long been forgotten. Uh, perhaps they're uh, they're important to, to your uh, to your friends or your loved ones' uh, memories, here's here are some great ways to commemorate them in various forms with some of our great sponsors. Uh, first and foremost, 417 Helmets. That's 417helmets.com. Collectible helmets and more. They're awesome. Mini helmets, custom-made, old teams and leagues, fantastic stuff. 417helmets.com. Use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases. Uh, streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. Promo code there, good seats, 15% off all of your purchases there. Awesome shirts from not only teams and leagues and lots of defunctness there, lots of good defunctness there, but also lots of great, cool sports uh, cultural things too. Uh, like the onions shirts uh, featuring uh, the the uh, the catchphrase of, of one Bill Raftery as we get into NCAA basketball. Uh, all that kind of stuff and more. The Caddyshack Collection, much more. Streakersports.com, promo code GOODSEATS. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Yes, if you want the best in high quality uh, and hard to find sports collectible items, programs and guides and pennants, you name it, use uh, the promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. You'll be glad you did. Uh, how about some shirts? Sure. Two places for those. How about oldschoolshirts.com? Promo code GOODSEATS, 10% off all of your purchases there. Great logos, not only of teams and leagues no longer with us, but also things like radio stations and, and shopping malls and uh, TV programs and all kinds of fun stuff that uh, you may have just forgotten. Lots of great uh, uh, deep dives into various cities and, and regions of the country as well. Oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off. And of course, last but not least, the king of throwbacks. Yes, it's 503sports, 503-sports.com. Promo code there is seats. And you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. Not only great t-shirts, but fantastic handcrafted, lovingly made jerseys, 
from various, say, football leagues and uh, baseball uh, teams of your and and all kinds of great stuff at 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. Try them one, try them all, and uh, hopefully helpful for the holidays. And uh, we appreciate all of them for their sponsorship. And we appreciate you checking them out and hopefully making a couple of purchases and making the sports fan in your life that much happier. All right, let's make me happier by getting on to our conversation, a wonderful one, uh, with our pal Derek Liechti as we get into pro soccer, late 60s. It's the Oakland, or sometimes California Clippers. Here's our conversation we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. Before we sort of get into the co- the uh, the story of, of the Clippers, um, maybe you could give our audience a little bit of, of understanding and background about how uh, you came to the uh, the doorstep of this uh, beginning and fledgling franchise in the mid to late 1960s. Were you a quote-unquote soccer guy? Were, were you in the sports field? Did no, you just fall I, into this? How did, how did this even get into your, into your world? I'll give you a, a brief history. I grew up uh, American-born, grew up in Santa Barbara, California, and at age 10 in 1942, I started playing what I call organized soccer, not swarm soccer, but with a coach who knew about how positioning and all of that kind of thing. And that went on through my high school years at that particular school. And um, that was my when I got soccer in my blood. And um, after that, I went, I got into Stanford University, played uh, three seasons there, was the captain of the team in 1953 and the most valuable player. And uh, so at the same time, interestingly enough, I became very interested in the laws of the game and studying the laws of the game, particularly because I was noticing that there were two or three versions of soccer laws in the United States. Uh, mainly FIFA, uh, collegiate NCAA, and high school. And so I was always uh, perplexed about why we had to have these three different rule books for the same game. Well, I, and by the way, that's that's kind of still the same, isn't it? I mean, I know there's been some uh, amalgamation, but it's still there still are these little idiosyncrasies, right? Oh, it's ridiculous, yes. It's very much the it's, uh, still there, there, these three different books. But things have gotten better. At least uh, uh, we, we used to have a dual referee system in NCAA soccer, and we finally got rid of that ridiculous uh, thing and gone to um, the referee. And now the, the referee has assistance. He doesn't have linesmen. He has assistance <laughs> and so on. So there have been a lot of changes over the years. But um, um, in any case, my interest in, in the laws of the game t- uh, also were evidence when I went to work in Chile in 1959 and uh, was able to get a, to be licensed by the Chilean Soccer Federation as a licensed referee after going through an extensive course given uh, by an Italian instructor who was one of the most famous referees in the world that nobody knows about named Diego De Leo. And uh, so I got that refereeing experience down there. Why, why Chile? Uh, I beg your pardon? Why Chile uh, versus somewhere else in the world? 
well, I, I went to work for a company in New York that owned um, American owned public utility companies throughout Latin America. And fortunately, the one country they sent me to that was the most pleasant was Chile. And um, so I worked there as an administrative position, but I spent most of my time in the soccer stadium with the referee instructor I just mentioned. Um, and also played a bit with our company team. And uh, it was at that time that um, I started reading about the International Soccer League uh, forming in 1959 with some fellow named William D. Cox in New York. And uh, what his program was going to be. And I wrote, I wrote to him and said, uh, this is fantastic. To, they're going to bring these professional teams from all over the world to play in actual tournaments in New York. This is unprecedented. And um, I know your idea is to try and see if the uh, American public will take to soccer if it's pay played before them on a competitive basis rather than just having exhibition games that they've been having in the United States for years and years in, uh, just after the war. So uh, a long story short is that uh, Mr. Cox uh, hired me. I quit my job in uh, uh, Chile and went to work for him in 1961 and 1960s. And this was an absolute uh, incredible opportunity for me uh, to be mixing with the, some of the, the players and the management of some of the best teams in the world that came to play in Mr. Cox tournament. And uh, so that lasted for, I lasted for two seasons, although uh, his program lasted till, through 1965. And then there was a hiatus uh, until we had the 1966 World Cup televised nationally in the United States for the first time. And uh, there was considerable interest perked up. And Mr. Cox, who had, uh, Sometime you might want to devote a whole program to Mr. Cox, a most unusual entrepreneurial man who had been involved in professional sports and football and baseball before he got uh, was hooked on soccer. But in any case, uh, after 1966 World Cup final, he is the person who actually started what we know as Major League Soccer today because he. Uh, is the person who got all of the sports people organized to, to uh, form the National Professional Soccer League and sought permission from the United States Soccer Football Federation to put this on. And the, immediately the hierarchy of the feudalistic organization at that time, the United States Soccer Football Federation, was very leery about this pro program and what he was doing. Uh, and so they told him he couldn't do it. And, but the, he pursued and his, and his uh, millionaire baseball and football people uh, followed through. And so the youth said, well, if they're gonna do that, we're gonna start our own um, league in competition with this outlaw league. And uh, they had a meeting in San Francisco in 1966 to try and determine 
well, who was going to who was going to be able to do this or not? And um, Mr. Cox's group was uh, thrown out, and um, his group said, "Well, we're moving right ahead, regardless uh, of what the well, I'll call it USFA uh, says, even though we are not affiliated with them, and we are, have will have difficulties with FIFA in getting players, etc., to come." And play in our league. So the major thing that happened was that the Mr. Cox group was able to get a contract with CBS Television, which the, the useful group uh, did not have for their competition, which consisted of having imported teams coming and playing in the various cities at the same time that we were putting on our games. All right, so let, let's stop there for one second because th- th- there's the, the height of irony uh, around this because uh, let me just go back to the ISL for a second, right? So Bill Cox, right, um, uh, baseball, Philadelphia Phil- Phillies uh, sort of exited the sport in a little sort of cloud of controversy. Um, but it, it, the idea that he kind of latched onto was top-tier professional teams from around the world, right? Americans seemed certainly ethnic audiences within in the United States for sure uh wound up uh being very attracted in big stadiums especially in the New York area to start uh to top tier top tier games right and we're talking like Ebbets Field and, and and the the polo grounds and uh you know the old Randall's Island Downing Stadium and and you know some some big crowds but the who knew top tier uh uh talent uh and games and and uh he saw that there was a big draw to that. Um, wh- you got involved early on. So this was largely a New York City metropolitan area thing uh, to kind of start, right? Which was probably a, a perfect place, right? Because it's probably the, the ultimate in, in ethnic melting pots uh, to, to start something like that, yeah? Well, we, we did have um, – most of the games uh, when I was there were played in Randall's Island. It's a horrible uh, field in the middle of the uh, – East River, uh, but we also had games in the, at the Polo Grounds and some games in Montreal and Philadelphia. Um, so, uh, yes, they did they brought very reasonable crowds, but it's still not enough for him to continue with the process, and so he folded it up after 1965. And, and just correct me if I'm wrong, it was also these some of those games were actually televised locally, weren't they? Too. I, I believe they were. I, I, I can't quite remember. Yeah, I, I've seen in some of my research uh, some old ads for uh, uh, the still with us today, WPIX Channel 11, uh, broadcasting some of those games. And boy, what would I, what we give uh, to get some, uh, some, some footage of that? I'm sure they don't exist. But, um, but it does speak to arguably, and I think to your point earlier, right, truly – that international soccer league with its let's call it replacement teams or, or teams from abroad, right. Playing top tier quality soccer in the United States in a tournament fashion was really the beginnings of the sort of modern day version of what we're going to get into, which is prof- a professional league. But the irony is not lost here, right? Because as you're talking about sort of these two uh, entities in 1966, uh, circling around the idea with maybe dollar signs in their eyes, this idea of pro soccer off of a 1966 
World Cup exposure in the United States for kind of the really the first time on television, network television. Um, the irony is that while the United States Soccer Federation uh, is essentially saying no to Cox and crew, what is this uh, approved league wind up doing? And to, to, to kind of catch up to the NPSL, they actually import full teams from abroad to play, which is crazy and ironic. Yes, it is. But um, it, it ends up in, in the so-called merger at the end of the 1967 season with the formation of the North American Soccer League. So um, that's where, where it went from there. All right. Well, so, so get me into the to the Clippers story. How did how does that become something that you become involved with? The Clippers were part of this now or or soon to be renegade National Professional Soccer League, renegade in that FIFA and the USSF a not uh, granting it official status, which in soccer circles is a big deal. If you've never followed the sport of soccer before, that sort of uh, a blessing from the International Federation uh, is outsized, uh, perhaps unlike any other sport in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, undeterred, right, uh, the MPSL seems to, to move along, but it's got a CBS national television contract in its back pocket, not unimportant. Um, how do you come across the league and, and Mr. Cox doing this again, uh, and Oakland in particular? Well, Mr. Cox um, and I kept in contact um, on and off after I left in 1962. And uh, he always, uh, he, he, he and I had a very good relationship. <clears throat> and when he met, met with his millionaire group down in Texas to uh, uh, do the finalization of the formation of the National Professional Soccer League and to uh, met out the, the franchises to all these different cities. Um, he met uh, uh, two gentlemen, two oil men down there, Mr. H.G. Toby Hilliard and Mr. Uh, and Mr. Joe O'Neill, uh, who wanted to have the franchise in San Francisco. And so um, these two gentlemen who know absolutely nothing about soccer and had never been involved in professional sports before, uh, were just coming in totally cold. So Mr. Cox uh, called me on the telephone from their meeting and said, uh, look, uh, Lichty, he always called me Lichty instead of Lichty, so I got used to. Uh, Lichty says, uh, we have these two Oil men, they're coming up to San Francisco tomorrow, and they, they've got the franchise for San Francisco for our new National Professional Soccer League. And you know everything about soccer in the Bay Area. So go over to the hotel, uh, at the Fairmont Hotel, and meet them. So I went over there. I, I was in the real estate business at the time. I bugged out of my job, got over there. Went in the Fairmont Hotel and up to their room, and here, here they were sitting in there, along with a third gentleman that uh, happened to be a person that I knew from the past, but I didn't know that he knew them. Well, quite a coincidence. So 
I briefed them on soccer in the Bay Area. Uh, they were obviously uh, very taken with my passion for the game and uh, all of this business. So I, the next thing I know, they flew home to Texas and about a week later or less, I got a phone call from Mr. Hilliard and said, uh, well, we'd like you to come down here to Texas and talk about being our general manager. And oh boy, I was going, oh, this is my dream. <laughs> this is the dream coming true. So I bugged out of work again and flew down there. They hired me, I quit my job. And so then we started to get to work in San Francisco with okay. the, what we call the Oakland Clippers. All right. So, so why the San Francisco area? Was this sort of part of a grand design of, of Cox and crew uh, to have at least one, if not more, franchises on the West Coast, yeah. perhaps a la the NHL uh, in 1967 itself expanding? Quite certain in that first season we had L.A., San Francisco, Vancouver, uh, I believe San Diego. Um, and, um, yeah, they wanted to, to make it national. So it was spread across the country. So we had the Midwest in St. Louis, particularly. We had Dallas and uh, in Chicago, and then the team back back in the East. So this was truly a national uh, league, so to speak. It wasn't wasn't just some East Coast thing like the American Soccer League used to be back in the in the forties, fifties, and early sixties. How how much of this uh, uh, internal craziness about the FIFA and USSFA blessing and all that kind of stuff did you know or not know about? And and how about that television contract? Did you know that either by the time you said yes to this offer? Uh, well, I knew they were I knew they were going to have trouble with FIFA. Um, and um, well, all I knew was they, they managed to get this television contract, which was really the coup de grace for getting rid of the other people. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's all I can say about that. And um, so tell me then how you go. So this is, we're talking November, December, 1966, correct? Uh, Or so? Yeah, they, well, they, they made several trips out. Well, the, the first big trip, they came out to San Francisco, besides the one where I met them, uh, because they, they would say, well, we got to, as Mr. Uh, Hilliard like to say, we got to huckle the buckets to get going here. So we got to establish an office, which we did in San Francisco. And then they said, well, of course, we're going to put in San Francisco, we're going to play in Kizar Stadium. And I said, that's crazy. Because Kizar Stadium, which is this big old dilapidated wind tunnel, foggy, horrible place. Um, I said, look, we've just had completed in Oakland, the Oakland Coliseum and Arena. Um, and uh, we should go, you sh- I should take you over to meet the guy who put this all together, uh, Mr. Robert Nahas, a big real estate developer in the East Bay. And you take a look at this facility, and it will be much nicer place to play than windy old Kizar Stadium. And so we got in my folks' wagon, and I got them over to meet Mr. Nahas, and they all, the three of them, hit it off immediately. And uh, 
went down to the down to look at the stadium and they said, you're right, Vietti's right, we gotta play here <laughs> in Oakland. So uh, we moved the, the temporary office we had in uh, San Francisco over to um, downtown Oakland and that got the office going. But then we had to get the team together. Oh, oh yeah, that, right? And by the way, so you're, you're, you're talking about December or so of 66, and you've got a season that's supposed to start, what, what April of 67? March, I think it was. March, even worse. Yeah. And, um, well, we were extremely fortunate compared to the other teams in the National Professional Soccer League, uh, who many of whom really didn't have – a real basis in soccer. Their owners didn't know about soccer really. They were they were going over to England and trying to find this person and that person. Unfortunately, for, fortunately for the Clippers, in, in one of the early meetings in San Francisco, a gentleman came up who from Los Angeles who was starting a team called the Los Angeles Toros, and his name was Dan Tanner. And Mr. Tana was a, a Yugoslavian immigrant who had come to the United States, oh, some years before, started a very successful restaurant, made quite a bit of money. Oh, so that is the same guy, Dan Tana. I, I was I was wondering when reading that if that was indeed the same uh, restaurant, legendary restaurant guy. Yes, indeed, indeed it is. It's still there. <laughs> and so, um, so. Mr. Tana came up to meet us in San Francisco uh, to talk about the league and getting things going and so on. He said, well, what are you going to do about a coach? And, of course, we said, well, we don't know. Um, he said, well, I know this guy over in Belgrade who was out of a job, and he's the Casey Stengel of soccer in Yugoslavia. Maybe he'd like to come over here and be, be your team manager. So we got on the phone and got a hold of Dr. Alexander Obradovich, formerly of Red Star of Yugoslavia, which is one of the most famous European club teams of all time, and uh, said, uh, well, would you be interested in possibly being the team manager for this uh, uh, new franchise in San Francisco in this outlaw league? And he said, no problem. <laughs> And Mr. O'Neill climbed to the next plane, flew over to Belgrade. They met and threw their glasses into the fire after many toasts and all that stuff. And the next thing you know, uh, Dr. Obradovich was signed up. And the thing I think also that helped a little bit, if I may say so, is that Red Star came to play in New York in the International Soccer League. And in the time that I was there, and I be, I got to know Dr. Obradovich very well, and I when I think when he heard that I was involved with this and that I'd been involved with the International Soccer League, that also could have helped him make his decision. So the next thing I know, he shows up in San Francisco and he says, "Well, I can get, I'll get some players." So he bought over these six first division players. He brought over a coach, who former Red Star uh, captain and and uh, an international player, Ivan Toplak, and a trainer. And uh, as soon as they got off the plane, we started 
building the team around this group. And um, so um, we went off and uh, he went he went off and scouted some players down in South America in the Costa Rica. And um, sure enough, he found three players with uh, the first division club team Saprisa in uh, San Jose, Costa Rica, and got these three top inter, inter Costa Rican international players to agree to come and play with the Clippers. But, oh, how are they going to uh, do that? Because they've, they're under contract with Saprisa. We were able to, and we've got the FIFA problem and so on. Long story short is, we gave them money to buy out their contracts, and here they came. And they were two of them, William Quiroz and Edgar Marin, uh, really top flight players, uh, were with us during the whole time. Um, so, um, but th I'm sorry, let's back up for a second. Th th that that became the mechanism, no, for getting players to, if you will, join a quote unquote outlaw league, right? Was I'm guessing you, you were – I guess you were skirting FIFA's rules by trying to ensure that a player you were interested in was technically out of contract, and that was the best way or, or most yes. palatable way to get both them and you sort of off the hook? The uh, Obradovich managed to get releases for the Yugoslavian players through means I do not know. We did not pay him for it. And I, I, I will jump ahead and say that all of the players who were so-called outlaw players with us, after all was said and done, we had the merger with the North American Soccer League and made everything up with FIFA, all of our players were cleared uh, by FIFA without any problem, uh, which uh, did not, was not the case with some of the other teams. So... But most of these players were also, like the ones from England, were free agents. Um, and um, so we, and then we found this very good Norwegian player named Trond Hofbed, a midfielder. So uh, we, that's how we built up this team. I also went down to uh, uh, Central America, to El Salvador, and, and signed up uh, two other players. One from Uruguay and another another one from El Salvador. So we, we had this potpourri of, of players. And so how are they all getting to get along and they all can't speak the same language and so on. But uh, uh, Obradovich has he's had a way with, with people. They, these people knew who he was and his background. He brought with them Mr. Toplak, who also uh, was very capable of adjusting to this idiosyncratic uh, group. <laughs> and uh, then I, I was helpful in, in being able to translate in Spanish for a lot of the, lot of the goings on. So uh, we, 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 managed, we managed to put together a formidable team. Well, formidable is being, is kind of an understatement. We'll get to that in a second, but also, uh, some names uh, that arguably went on to become uh, uh, 
quite legendary uh, in the years following, not just in this league, but in the leagues, plural, to follow. Uh, in particular, Elijah Midich, right, who, you know, probably, uh, I guess he was the leading scorer that first year and, and went on to uh, great exploits in the North American Soccer League years later yes. uh, and, and other other teams. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess it's just, would you consider it just dumb luck that you were able to sort of, you know, find this Yugos, then Yugoslavian uh, connection, so to speak, so quickly yeah. in the process, as well as your ability uh, either by by chance or by by uh, design to actually figure out the ways around, you know, getting blocked by FIFA in the process. Well, to get to get to your first question, it it was an incredible luck to get Dr. Obradovich. Incredible. Uh, I'm not sure where we would have gone if uh, we, we, we had no plan B. <laughs> he was he was plan A and what was it? And um, so, yes, it was incredible luck getting Dr. Obradovich. Well, and then you go on, though, to say that, that you had a, quite a formidable team. Um, you want to you want to tell well but before we get into to how well the team did okay because it, 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 it you know uh, it, there's a championship involved let's put it that way um, let, let me also though ask you off the field in that short amount of time how the hell are you trying to get marketing this team right not only is it a new sport and in a new arena and a new team and league and name. But it's also a new sport. I mean, to, to the American public, right? Uh, it's also now uh, slowly but surely being uh, uh, filled by uh, players, many of whom, frankly, can't pass the the pronunciation test with most average Americans. I, that's that's like a quadruple, if not more, whammy on from a marketing perspective, isn't it? Well, well, very much so. But I think. The first thing, the first thing that the owners did, and they were extremely good at it, was and knew they had to establish a rapport with the local sports writing people. And we had several newspapers in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Examiner and the San Francisco Chronicle, the big ones, and we had newspapers in San Jose, we had big papers in Hayward and down the peninsula. And uh, so uh, they were willing to spend the money necessary to show um, these um, sports editors that this was a viable, to be a viable and professional thing. And so they visited all of these editors uh, in the various newspapers to to get them, and, you know, and gave them, you know, lunches and, you know, slideshows and all that stuff um, to get them to realize that uh, these people were serious. I took them over to visit the editor, sports editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, Mr. Art Rosenbaum, who was and had been for years in that position and didn't give a damn about soccer, even though we had had organized soccer in San Francisco since the early 1900s. And 
he said to them, oh, well, you guys, all you're going to do is bring me more work. That was the kind of sour attitude. I mean, he, he, was, he was an exception, though. And um, so I think uh, two of the things we did for the, for the press was, look, Hilliard and O'Neill and I said, uh, there's going to be a big exhibition game in Los Angeles between Real Madrid and another team. And let's take these, some of these sports writers, not the editors, the sports writers, that they're going to assign to cover our games, put them in an airplane, and take them down and show them what a real soccer game looks like. And I think that was really the 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 what the final thing that convinced these sports people all around the Bay Area that we were serious. And uh, so they uh, they indeed they didn't assign their major writers to come uh, to our games. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, some of them over the years. Uh, after covering the Clippers, not, but not because of the Clippers, they became major sports reporters in the Bay Area. They included Glenn Dickey from the San Francisco Chronicle and Dave Newhouse from the, from the Oakland Tribune. And, um, so, uh, that was our first major sort of marketing thing was to get the, the press behind us so that they would write stories about what we're trying to do. Marketing, What's a huge problem in that, okay, how are you going to advertise these games in the newspapers, uh, uh, get on television interviews, um, and whatever. Uh, but one of our advertise quote marketing efforts was to hire a man named Donald Greer, who was in charge of developing youth soccer in the Bay Area under the California Soccer Association North. And we we hired him full-time on staff in order to set up clinics around the Bay Area where our players would go and put on, you know, clinics and exhibitions and so on. Now, this was another attempt at marketing. Um, but all in all, we have to say and admit that marketing was our biggest bugaboo. It just, it didn't work. And in the long run, we did not get the crowds that we had hoped. Not because it wasn't a good play on the field, but that just that the Bay Area sports people just weren't ready yet, in my opinion, for what we were doing. Now, okay, so but let me ask you this, though. Ready for soccer? Ready for the new venues in Oakland? Because we've, we've talked about the Seals on this show a number of times. And, and, and you know, and it was a bit of a struggle, I think, uh, certainly for them. Although, yeah, I, you know, it was also new to the, to the Bay Area region, too, right? This is in the days probably before BART and, and easy sort of access besides cars. How much of it was the new stadium and the new location in Oakland? per se, how much of it was soccer in the sports firmament? And frankly, important question, which I, nobody seems to know the answer to, but I'd love to hear it. How much, how about the competition from the United Soccer Association's Golden Gate Gales? 
who were playing, I think, at Kizar that year, right? Yeah. Well, yes, yes, I'm sure they they dragged they dragged away some people that would have crossed the bay uh, to see our games. Um, but um, frankly, I I personally didn't pay much attention to them. I don't even know what kind of crowds crowds they got, but I'm sure they weren't any better than ours. Interesting. But was, was it? But but you soccer though was it the Bay Area and 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 Oakland? It was was that were those any factors in this? Uh, well, I'd say the game was still quote new to to our American-born kids or. Who were imbued, were imbued with their football and baseball, and and uh, uh, I gave you an example, an example, <laughs> um, which is Clay Burling. Is that name familiar to you? Absolutely, longtime uh, founder and publisher uh, of Soccer America, arguably the well, uh, the the uh, you know the the diary, if you will, of American soccer for for decades. Our marketing was. To make this game, putting on coming to a game ridiculously inexpensive, and see he he said, "Oh well, this new new thing called new to him soccer. Well, I'll go see what that's all about, and take my five kids down there, and not have to spend a fortune to, for a, a Sunday afternoon outing." And uh, what happened? There is that Clay Burling became totally hooked on soccer. I consider one of our legacies the fact that Clay Burling ended up totally hooked on soccer and became the preeminent uh, purveyor of, of soccer knowledge in the United States with his publications. And, uh, yeah. So, but to get back to your original question about marketing, Marketing was our most difficult challenge. Interesting. Um, so give me a sense then of the play, because not only did, I mean, this is, you know, back in the day, uh, not only did the uh, Clippers wound up uh, winning um, the uh, MPSL title, uh, I, I guess there wasn't even a regular season sort of, supporter shield like there is today but winning the championship and then the uh this uh, uh second uh second competition the commissioner's cup i guess they won the double right which is you know probably the uh the ultimate expression of how you essentially dominated this league in its very first year yeah i i, I would agree with that and i think um one of the one of the things not re- realized is that that you've probably read in some of these things that we're we brought the first national championship in any sport to the Bay Area, which uh, all these snooty uh, sports people today, you know, never even heard of us. <laughs> bothers me. Yeah. So uh, how how did the the sports intelligentsia then uh, respond? I mean, I you, you know I know the. The MPSL final was a, a two-game uh, affair between the Baltimore Bays and the Clippers, and the first game actually lost to the Bays, won nothing in Baltimore uh, in September of '67, and then a week later, uh, in front of uh, about nine thousand at the at the Coliseum, 
uh, winning four to one in aggregate, then over the Bays and winning the championship. Um, I'm sure your memory was uh, 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 fonder and and more uh, uh, you know warm and and uh, uh, amazing perhaps than than nine thousand fans rattling around a fifty some odd thousand seat stadium, right? But um, how, how was it received? Was it kind of like did anybody that did the sports writers kind of pay attention? Was there any sort of uh, uh, media uh, you know celebration, so to speak? Or were were there more fans out there, or was it kind of kind of a quiet affair? No, no, we we got we got a lot of headlines. Uh, um, in one of the uh, preliminary games, I'm looking at an Oakland Clippers sports page right now with, with a huge headline: "A first Clippers in the playoffs," and big picture of uh, of our players celebrating in the locker room, and then an action picture below that, and a big story. Uh, that's in the Oakland Tribune, and um, no, I think uh, I think they were they were I truly think they were sorry to see us go. Um, the and I think the, I'm talking about the sports writers people. They were sorry to see us go, and sorry to see this really, if I may say so, well-run, respected uh, sports professional sports organization uh not come not being able to be successful i think they were really um, they wanted to help us yeah now i'm also assuming that that the players were well you tell me how how accessible were the players and how much were they involved uh in the community either on their own uh on their own efforts or perhaps the the organization mandating that they Take part because we we've had a number of conversations with folks, you know, in the early NASL days, and to a person, to a man, they'll 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 regale into the stories about how they they love the community, they got into the weeds with the community, and to the extent that there was, uh, you know, enough of them, the community loved them back, and then some. W- was that sort of going for you too? I mean, was that part of the press sort of maybe enamored, uh, be, being enamored with you guys? Um. Well, I can't say that so much because uh, the players were basically housed in Redwood City, which is down the peninsula from San Francisco, which is where we had our training ground. And uh, so they wouldn't be visible walking around the streets in Oakland, so to speak. Uh, But but they got plenty of uh, exposure uh, through, through our clinics and and interviews and the press and so on. All right, a couple of questions about the MPSL, and then I want to segue into the next year of the NASL and and that sort of shotgun marriage, right? Um, How about television, right? I know CBS had a bunch of games in Godway. There's another source of video that we'd love to get our hands on. I think a lot of people would. I I don't know if any exists, frankly, but, you know, there's there's always a a garage sale or something where a surprise could be found. but of those, do you remember any of those telecasts, uh, any of them featuring the Clippers? I got to think there were at least a few of them. Um, and uh, the quality of those broadcasts. And um, I, I certainly know there were some, <laughs> there was a little uh, inventiveness, shall we say, when it came to commercial breaks. Well, they were a total joke. <laughs> uh, you know, 
these these television people just couldn't seem to understand how they could possibly advertise at the same time the game was going on, which is what we have today uh, with advertising all around the stadiums and think borders going around the bottom of the screen and whatever. Um, so when they're asking you know, the referee to uh, keep the player down while we run an ad, <laughs> just, uh, you know, it's ridiculous. So, so the, the, there were, this is, to your knowledge and to your, maybe to your eyes, first person, referees were in on creating, I don't know, phantom fouls for the sake of TV commercial time? Well, I wouldn't know if I'd call them phantom fouls, but if somebody fell down, maybe you t- just tell them to stay down until he gets word that the commercial's over. I, that's fascinating. I, and again, I'd love to see some broadcast footage of this. Uh, and I think people sort of, sort of forget. I, you know, I was barely conscious at this time. But, um, you know, Jack Whitaker, who was uh, well-known and just recently departed uh, last year, uh, well-known uh, uh, voice, uh, uh, broadcast a lot of those games. Uh, and also this guy, Danny Blanchflower, who uh, came over from from uh, from England and uh, was, shall we say, less than charitable about the, the action that he was seeing on the field yeah. to his audience. He was Mr. Truthful. <laughs> yeah, but he, he he didn't do us any good, that's for sure. Pretty harsh statements there. Again, I, we'd love, you know, uh, this is, uh, that's just sort of the, the endless quest for, for this video footage. All right, so, so, okay, you guys win the championship. By all, by all measures, right, uh, probably a very successful launching pad. But in the background, right, there were, you know, there were, there were problems, right? The, the last thing that professional soccer, uh, you know, rebooted professionally in the United States needed at its outset were two competing leagues. Um, and so g- give me a sense of when you and, and the Clippers organization knew that not was all was not well with the NPSL and the USA for that matter. And what was going to happen or what was to happen or what do you thought was going to happen going into the next season? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. Remember the dates of when uh, the ownership of these two entities uh, really started getting together. Uh, but I, I'm sure it was, Probably before the end of the first season, um, they started talking about it. But I really don't, I don't have, and was not involved really in the merger per se. So I can't, I can't address much of that. Um, do you have any idea as to why in uh, the, of the two San Francisco Bay Area teams, why the Clippers were the ones chosen to stay and the Gales had to find someplace else to go or go away? Um, no, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't really remember. We were very glad to get rid of them. <laughs> and they ended up in Vancouver, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right. And then, then uh, Vancouver itself uh, being an old USA outpost uh, as well. So you see some of these pieces sort of to come together. Well, let me Let me ask you then, what did you – how different was 1968 then, both on and off the field, now part of this 
shall we say, marriage by uh, necessity of yeah. this now North American soccer league. Um, I mean, I, I, it's clear that this is, uh, you know, is, is taking two things that sort of had grand ambitions, uh, but I can't imagine it was necessarily the easiest, although it had television, right? And it had the blessing of FIFA. You'd think that maybe those were stabilizing elements going into a season two. Well, I, I can just, I will say it was a huge relief uh, to get all of that infighting and bureaucracy over with so that we could try and promote these games uh, without all of this stuff hanging over our heads. Uh, so for me personally, it was a, a, a huge relief. But the crowds didn't still come. The the play was still still pretty good, right? Well, yeah, but it's still not enough to make it viable. But I, as as you, we may get into later, I don't know how much time we have. But uh, when the '68 uh, season was over, uh, our ownership, Mr. Hilliard, Mr. O'Neill, Mr. Brinton said. We want to continue. We we we're not going to give up the Clippers just because this uh, league has folded up, and uh, uh, we we're willing to hold our team together, and and, and they're going to get paid less money, etc. We're going to hold our team together until the the NASL can get organized on a national basis, and we will be. Uh, the beacon out here in the West Coast to show that you that uh, they should start teams again in LA, San Diego, and so on. Uh, but as uh, we may know later, they didn't uh, they didn't like that. They didn't like our plan. All right. Well, I want to get to that in a second. But before we leave 1968, again, this was the first year of the the official year of the North American Soccer League, and by 1969, there were only barely five teams. Right. So this is. This is a very, you know, uh, yeah. very interesting year in, in the history of, of, of that league at the time. Um, but there's an interesting sort of dynamic that I didn't really know about until I kind of dug into this story. And that is, and maybe you can get into this a little bit, the Oakland Clippers in 68 had the second best points total and by extension record in the entire league, uh, but did not make the playoffs. They they were they were they were one point behind the San Diego Toros in their division. They yeah. just had they had, they had the the unluck, I guess, of being in the same division and not making the playoffs despite being one of the best teams in the league. Well, huge huge uh, disappointment and well, did the referee call offside improperly or not on our so-called winning goal against San Diego. And uh, so, so there was a game near the end of the season with San Diego that determined yes. the winner. Interesting. Yes. And uh, we had our winning goal called back for offside and uh, we couldn't recapture after that. And uh, San, and, uh, San Diego qualified. It was and again, if to our to our listeners, if you if you look up the actual standings in 1968, you'll notice that the the San Diego Toros 
got 186 points. And this is sort of using this, I guess now known as the Newman system, is six points for a win, three points for a tie. You didn't get any points for a loss. And you got one point for each goal scored up to three uh, each game, right? And the NASL adopted in, in years afterwards. But the, again, you look at the statistics and the Clippers had the second best point total. That is one point below the Toros, which had the best in the league. And the second best point total in the league, the Clippers did uh, in that year, was better than every single other playoff team uh, in, in the league. And they still didn't make it. And so that's, that's got to be maddening to a team that's coming off a championship season, uh, winning it all the year prior, the, the double, if you will, not having a chance to repeat. Uh, and, you know, deservedly, probably so, that they should have had the opportunity in some way, shape, or form. Um, that, that must have been beyond maddening. <laughs> yes, it was beyond maddening. So, I mean, I, I, okay, so how do your owners, I mean, I, so where do they get this? We're in it for the long haul then, because I, I would imagine if I were owning this franchise and seeing now a second league that I'm part of, no longer viable all of a sudden, and, 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 ha- and having the, you know, having the, 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 the added, you know, kick in the butt, of not making the playoffs when, when arguably you should have, um, why were they interested in sticking around with this thing? Given all of those things, I, I and money losing, I'm sure too. Yeah. Um, I truly believe that Mr. Hilliard and Mr. O'Neill were, um, that they loved the game and they, they loved the work that we had done putting this franchise together. And they had the money to keep the team together, even at lowered salaries and all that, uh, and were willing to wait it out and, and see if the uh, NASL would get organized again on a national basis within a reasonable time. And... Uh, it may well have been that if our venture with the uh, these international games, which came later, if those games had been more successful in terms of of um, uh, income, that they would have stuck it out. But there, there were two factors. Number one, the United States Soccer Federation denying us permission to continue with that program, and number two. All the all of the bureaucracy involved, they ended up saying, "This isn't any fun anymore. We're out." And um, so that's sort of how it all ended. All right, so so let's talk about that 1969 season. And again, for for those you know uh, soccer aficionados, um, the NASL uh, truncated dramatically to just five franchises. That that season, that next season, and without the Oakland Clippers, right? Which I'm sure uh, Phil Woosnam and 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 the league would have loved to have had as the sixth franchise. But uh, you recognize that what Oakland would have been the furthest distanced uh, team in that uh, that that group of six. 
uh, travel would have been probably very cost prohibitive. Uh, right. And you were not sort of, you know, not certain that the NASL was perhaps going to survive. So you saw international games yet again as the way to kind of at least hold on until perhaps they got their act together, right? Exactly. So yeah. I, I, I've also had some more irony, though, because the NASL, uh, maybe to its credit, right, not only – so they split their 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 league that year into a uh, not only a, a an internal five-team tournament amongst their own players, but then also had an international component where they imported five teams from – just like the ISL and just like the USA, full teams from abroad again. And to me, that's also ironic because that's what you guys were doing on your own. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's all very ironic. All right. So how, tell me then, and you, you, you sent this in your email to me, how do you essentially uh, get to do this? Because, FIFA wasn't necessarily, or the USSFA was not necessarily going to allow you to just import uh, games and, and teams to play on your own in your own sort of roguelike schedule, right? You you had to be aligned with some kind of, if not the NASL, with whom? Yeah, well, Dr. Abradovich and I came up with this idea after the 68 season that, okay, we're going we're gonna to try to uh, keep things together and have these uh, play against foreign teams that we will invite here because we think we can make a little enough money off of them. How do you do that? Well, you're no longer a member of the North American Soccer League, and you've got to be a member of something in order to get permission from the United States Soccer Federation to invite these teams. So, we joined, we, we changed the name to California Clippers, and we joined a local league called the Peninsula Soccer League, which was a little minor league, as our front, our front to give us affiliation with the California Soccer Association North, which would give us affiliation with the USPA so that we could go to USPA and say we're inviting Team X to come and play over here, and uh, and then USPA would have to give or give or not give permission to let us do that, and they did that for a while until they decided that what we were doing somehow was going to disrupt whatever the NASL was trying to do to reorganize itself, and as a result. Uh, they started denying us permission to bring teams in. And that's when the owners said, this isn't fun anymore. We're out. How many games uh, were you able to uh, achieve in that 69 season against international competition before? Uh, nine or 10 games. Um, well, we had, we had a tournament um, so that involved at least six you know, we, we, I think we had as many as 15 games. I'd have to look it over. Uh, and how it, how well attended were they? Were they as successful as you thought they were? Do you remember some of the teams, perhaps, that you were playing against that you drew in there? They were not. They were not as well attended as we would have liked. I think the, the, the games against the Russians, which would pique the most interest in the general public, were the most successful. 
Yeah, and, playing, and playing them in that horrible Keysmar Stadium, which was ironic also. Yeah, so uh, were, were most of those games in the Coliseum or were they at Keysar for no, to save were, money and stuff? They were. We played them at Stanford University. We played them in Fresno. We played them in um, in San Francisco, in Sacramento. Um, yeah, they were spread out around. Oh, so it became a regional thing. Okay, that's interesting, hence the California Clippers making – that makes a lot more sense. Um, I, I think perhaps in the in – the, um, in the mythology of this club, uh, that game against uh, Dinamo Kiev, um, the uh, first time, I guess, a team from the Soviet Union at the time uh, came to the United States, that, that, that's probably uh, uh, in the pantheon of, of legacy for this team. It's, uh, it's also one of the only games, I think, that's really readily available on the Internet. Um, but it's great. It's all, it's all there, that game. I, God bless whoever had it with Mario Machado. He have all-star soccer fame calling the game. Um, and it's great, the entire game. Uh, but it, it really does it, – it's an interesting watch for sure because it, it – it, not only is it a Keysar Stadium, you can see the, the, the football lines and the uh, – it's not, it's not necessarily the best environment there, right? And the crowd is somewhat sparse. Yeah. And you could also get the sense, though, that uh, – there's some interviews there with some of the owners and stuff about how they want to keep this thing going. And – uh, maybe maybe a few minutes on on the, the that that game um because I, I guess that was kind of a coup right because this was the first time that a soviet team was coming to the states and and that was like at the you know this is cold war time well uh, just a little background on bringing that team over to the united states in 1968 i went to a fifa conference in Guadalajara, Mexico, at a time when I was very friendly with Mr. McGuire, believe it or not. And he invited me to come to a reception where we talked about bringing teams over. And and uh, I said, uh, well, we, we're thinking about inviting over a team from the Soviet Union. Oh, he said, you'll never be able to do that. I'm the only person that would ever be able to to get these uh, Russians to agree to send a team over. And, and in other words, uh, <laughs> it'll never happen without me. Well, the next thing we know, we have Dr. Obradovich on the telephone at midnight from my little house in Oakland, California, calling up Mr. Granatkin, the uh, Soviet Federation chief, who is a big buddy of Dr. Obradovich, agreeing to, to arrange to send over DMO Kiev champions of the Soviet Union. So this was a coup, and Mr. McGuire did not like it. And he, uh, I think, uh, was one of the main reasons why he then started putting uh, obstruction in our path, bringing teams over. He was, he was furious that uh, we were able to do this. and. And by the time he realized what we were doing, it was too late for him to stop it because we had already made a huge to-do about it in the press. And uh, we had the State Department involved and all this stuff. It would have made him and the useful look terrible if they had said, no, no, that team out there in California, they can't bring this Russian team over. So that's how, the, how it got over, they got over here. 
actually we we had three games with them we, we had uh, the first one at Kizar, then we played in los angeles and then the final game which is the one i believe is had there's some video of uh in san francisco so we split it we tied one they won one we won one it was all very diplomatic diplomatic <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was really a, a wonderful finale for me uh, to be involved with that process although they were not the last game that we played our last game was against fiorentina champions of italy and we beat them in our finale um so anyway how 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 did the end come? Did McGuire somehow figure out a way to politically outmaneuver you somehow? No, he 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 was a guy. You did not bring a team into the United States from abroad without his permission, and if he said no, then it was no. And uh, so that you know, this is just another one of the the feudalistic things of of which he was the great the great king in charge of everything having to do with soccer in the United States, basically, uh, running the whole show. And whatever he said uh, was what happened. Um, so it ended up, you know, when everything was said and done, Mr. Brimson, a lawyer, filed suit against the United States Soccer Federation um, and uh, in an antitrust <laughs> suit and so on just another one of the legal hassles the use of unnecessarily got itself into over the years um anyway it was uh, it was the end of my dream so so to speak yeah not, and certainly not the first time that politics and soccer in the united states uh got in the way and uh, shot itself uh in the foot, the arm, the leg, and the hand, uh, and other various extremities. All right, so let's uh, to, to round the corner here. Let me ask you a couple of sort of wrap up questions then, because um, you know it's it's clear that this team uh, has is is more than a footnote, frankly, in, in the history of of the sport, certainly in the Bay Area uh, and in the United States professionally as well. Um, I'm really curious as to uh, the owners, once they kind of threw in the towel, um, did they follow the sport at all? And did they sort of perhaps uh, have second or third thoughts uh, as the years went on and the NASL did indeed resuscitate itself, including, by the way, a team in San Jose known as the Earthquakes? Uh, no, they, they were finished. They did, they did not follow through in any way. How about you? Did you kind of look around? Did you did, did the earthquakes come on your radar a couple of years later? Did you stay involved with the sport? I was married at the time, had a child. I did. The only hope was I think I could have possibly lined something up for me in the East Coast, but I did not want to go there. So uh, the um, the failure of the Clippers really took all a lot of soccer blood out of me and uh, i devoted myself then to 20 years of of refereeing soccer is really what i did then i became the executive secretary of the vid committee for the 1994 world cup for the bay area 
And I devoted, uh, well, we devoted six years to getting that all together. And lo and behold, what happened? We had six games at Stanford, in my Stanford Stadium, uh, six soccer games sold out during the World Cup. Um, so since that time, we've had um, the Earthquakes play their Classico in my stadium with 50,000 people in attendance and so on. So I'm seeing a lot of my original dreams from back in the 1940s come true, that professional soccer really will happen in the United States. All right. And that, and that is my, my sort of foundational sort of ending question is, uh, and we, we kind of get into the weeds on, on this particular type of question. And it's around the, the specific historical and uh, official, shall we say, legacy. Um, and sometimes it's very clear, you know, when teams relocate or, or uh, go away or, or get resuscitated, Lord knows we've seen it with the earthquakes, right? I mean, the original NASL version going away and then MLS coming back and then the name being, uh, you know, adopted again. And then slowly but surely and sometimes even begrudgingly, the history of the old league being adopted finally, right? The MLS and, and NASL relationship, not, you know, I, the names sort of came sooner than the histories did. So I guess the question is, you probably see this coming around the corner, where does the Clippers legacy live? Because frankly, a lot of, a lot, a bunch of some of the star players, right? Some of those uh, formerly Yugoslav uh, imports uh, kind of stuck around, right? Elijah Midditch, for example, you know, being a, a very well-regarded Hall of Fame player, not only in the league, but w- with the San Jose Earthquakes, I, you could make the argument, as I guess I'm trying to do inelegantly, that the the heritage of the Clippers is very much embedded in the history, wherever that lives, of the San Jose Earthquakes. No? Well, oh, yes, that's for sure. By, by the way, uh, uh, Mitch's first name is per- pronounced Ilya. Il- Ilya Mitch. Ilya. Thank you. <laughs> Il- Ilya Mitch, yeah. Anyway, uh, yes, that, that's for sure. Um, the... Um, well, the legacy, uh, there was this hiatus. We had the stompers here after the Clippers. They didn't last for a minute. Uh, but then uh, the earthquakes got rolling, and Peter Bridgewater, who became the general manager, was a real force behind uh, making that, that a success. Uh, we had Mr. Milan Mandarich, one of the, the early owners, and he kept it going. So it's... Um, it's interesting that the, the team, the earthquakes are owned by the Oakland A's. I'm not sure if you know that. Yes, yeah, so the, 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 everything goes around, that goes around comes around, right? Um, I, love, I guess the one last question I'll ask is, has, have you or anybody there with the earthquakes organization uh, discussed the possibility of somehow recognizing the Clippers and you know, maybe it's a, a, a throwback game or some kind of incorporation. I know the Quakes have done a really good job over the last couple of years, including, by the way, a film, really cool film that's on YouTube from last year, really talking about the original Quakes and a real adoption of of that history. I, I just, I wonder if the Clippers could be somehow included in that, or is that just sort of lost potentially to history? 
<laughs> uh, I'm not sure who would carry that forward. I don't think it would be me. Ah, but I leave it. I leave it to our audience because look, this is this is a team with with players and a couple of championships and and some some great you know lineage, frankly, to the the reboot, if you will, of professional soccer in this country back in the late sixties. Uh, you know, from which Major League Soccer in its twenty fifth year and counting. Would not be, you know, wouldn't wouldn't be possible, right? So it's truly on the on the on the backs of of pioneers, right? And in many respects, you as a general manager of this team are very much a pioneer, right? We talked to like with players too, right? Um, with Ilya, for example, uh, Midich, or 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 any of the other players who are still around. Um, the, without without this team, I will argue there there would not be any earthquakes, and there wouldn't probably be, you know, as rich a history as you've still been part of, uh, of soccer in, in the Bay area. And I, it's just a shame that, that it, it can't be somehow resuscitated or brought back to life or a throwback game or Jersey of some sort. Um, Cause to me, the lineage seems pretty strong and clear um, at least to this outsider. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, your thoughts on that, but again, and Again, as to where this all started, I go back to William D. Cox as the person who got going what we have today. And uh, yes, there have been these other pioneers as well, but it was his vision that got this whole thing started. All right. Our thanks to Derek. Uh, interesting stuff. And uh, it's it's a legacy, uh, I think, that uh, continues. If you squint really hard, uh, you can see the uh, embers of what used to be the Oakland slash California Clippers in the San Jose Earthquakes, uh, for sure. Certainly the NASL version uh, and arguably by um, by name and historical association, uh, the current version of said San Jose earthquakes. Hell, look, you could even make the argument that there's a little bit of a, a seed or two there in the Oakland Stompers of 1978, the one-year wonder that played in the uh, in the Coliseum as well. And look, there's a whole sort of robust history of, of Bay Area soccer. Um, you know, we probably want to get into the Golden Gate Gales story, uh, both the ASL um, in, the, um, in the 70s, but the one-year wonder that was their crosstown rival of the Oakland Clippers uh, playing in the old Keysar Stadium in the United Soccer Association. Um, all kinds of fascinating things uh, left uh, to find uh, in the uh, months and years to come. Um, let's see, Derek's uh, great article um, called The Oakland Clippers, A Personal Reflection on Pro Soccer in the 1960s uh, can be found at the Society for American Soccer History's website, SASH for short. Uh, and that website is uh, ussoccerhistory.org, ussoccerhistory.org. And uh, it's uh, Derek's uh, recent posting. And um, as uh, he was uh, chatting with me after uh, our microphones were turned off, um, he's got some other uh, stories and uh, uh, things probably percolating within. Uh, certainly, 
the International Soccer League, where he sort of got bitten by the uh, professional bug uh, to be a, an administrator uh, in the sport, as you heard in that conversation. Uh, the story of Bill Cox and, and uh, those international games, uh, largely in the New York and Northeast areas uh, in the early 60s that begot uh, or begat uh, at least one thread of professional soccer in the late 60s. Um, but also the uh, there's a there's a, a couple of pieces of hardware sort of floating out there that uh, he's looking to sort of bring back. It, it, one of which was uh, the the uh, the Champions Cup uh, that the uh, the teams uh, at the end of each season uh, in the International Soccer League would win, and then they would be able to take back home with them uh, to their various uh, ports of call. Um, and uh, Derek is sort of on a mission, I guess, to bring that championship trophy back from, I think he said it was in Warsaw, Poland. I guess that was the uh, the team that last won the ISL championship back in 65 was uh, was a team from Poland. So um, so I think there's lots of uh, interesting stories left to be had there from Derek about the ISL, that championship trophy, et cetera. And uh, we have already made a bargain with him that uh, as soon as he uh, puts it, uh, for that the proverbial pen to paper, uh, we will have him back to discuss that because the ISL, uh, itself is a fascinating story, and we really would like to get deeper into that because, frankly, as Derek uh, mentioned in our, our chat, without the International Soccer League in the early 60s, we might not even have had uh, the late 1960s uh, uh, pro leagues and, and arguably uh, what sort of came out of all of that, including Major League Soccer of today. Uh, that is the debate, and uh, we want to get into it, and we will soon, someday, for sure. Uh, but until then, uh, we encourage you to keep listening. Uh, certainly subscribe uh, to us on your favorite podcast catcher, your player, whatever you like. If you do so, or you tell your friends to do so, how about giving us a, a, a thumbs up or a five-star rating or whatever, a review. We appreciate that. That helps other people like you find the show. Uh, of course, our website at goodseatstillavailable.com uh, is the repository for every single episode we've ever done and every single episode we uh, hope to do in the future. Uh, so if something has eluded you, uh, by all means, uh, that site has got you covered, including, by the way, convenient links uh, to the various books and media and other offerings that our various guests have uh, brought along with them when they come to, uh, to talk with us. Uh, and of course, by clicking the links uh, from those uh, descriptions on that page, uh, that not only will you be taken directly to uh, the places to get those things fulfilled, like Amazon for books, etc. Uh, you'll be giving us a few affiliate shekels of love uh, in the process, and we always appreciate that too. Uh, that's a great way to help us support the show for sure. You're not paying anything for it, friends. Uh, at the very least, perhaps a little of that. We appreciate that. And let's see. Social media, yeah, we're around there. Uh, we're on Facebook. You'll find a page devoted to us there. You will find us on Instagram. We're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still uh, if you'd like to send us email, we're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, also on the website, uh, there is a link there. You can sign up for our weekly email newsletter as well. Our thanks this week to our pal, Jerry Payne. Uh, we cannot do this show without his uh, his great and grand efforts. And uh, once again, fantastic this week. Thank you, kind sir. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. And... Um, I guess that's it for now. We uh, wish you uh, the beginnings, hopefully, of a pleasant holiday season and uh, plenty more good stuff to come, not only during the uh, rest of the holiday uh, month ahead, but uh, some really great stuff coming up in the new year for sure. Uh, my name's Tim. I appreciate your listening. And uh, until next week, we'll uh, 
we'll uh, look out for you and uh, we'll see you then. Thanks. Bye.